Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Marcella Sabino. She is a foresight strategist, creative director, and innovation designer with over 16 years of experience in areas such as emerging technologies, art and culture, and international development focusing on designing future-forward strategies and implementing impactful multi-stakeholder initiatives. She is currently the head of innovation for the Museo of Tomorrow in Rio de Janeiro, an applied science and technology museum. For the past five years, she directed the lab of the museum, where she developed projects using exponential technologies such as AI, VR, digital fabrication, robotics, big data, and the internet of things. I'm really excited to have Marcel on the show. So welcome to The Deep Dive. Thanks so much, Philip. I'm so excited to be here. Now, I came across your work Last year, I did a guest lecture at Parsons here in New York, School of Design. So I want to give a shout out to Tim Stock, who invited me to do that talk to his class. And the title of my conversation was Futures Thinking, Design and Sustainability. And I used the template of the Museo of Tomorrow to kind of talk about the potential for building sustainability, building humanity-centered technologies into a space. So that was like my first time really diving into the work of the museum. So I kind of knew your work and the imprint you've had way before we kind of got engaged in having this conversation. And I've spent a lot of time going back and forth to Brazil, more Sao Paulo recently, but Rio back in my younger, more carousing days before the museum was there. So that kind of gives a little bit of a backdrop to my relationship, but I want to really give you an opportunity as someone who's had such an amazing career the first part of it in what I would call like social development. You've worked at the World Bank, Inter-American Development Bank. Now you're in firmly in the arts and culture space, but obviously with the technological perspective to kind of walk us through a little bit of that journey to where you are right now. Great. Yeah. So um, it has been a journey. And I think that one thing that really helped me um, think about this. Somebody once told me that your career should answer a question. And I thought I was really interested in maybe as corny as it sounds, but you know, how do you make the world a better place? And so what's the best way to promote human development, right? In an equitable, sustainable and impactful way. So I was really interested, started off my career at looking at the, at the Social Science Research Council in New York, looking at kind of the impacts of technology on civil society, on governments, on a wide variety of, of things, just to understand what is this incredible force behind technology. And then uh, I became really interested in getting more of a sense of, okay, so let me get some more tools and frameworks and processes to help this more. My background is so much yours. I did uh, anthropology and political science in college. And I wanted to get some more kind of tools and frameworks to work to help this idea of promoting human development. So I went to the Harvard Kennedy School where I did a master's in political and economic development. 
trying to understand how to do development in a more impactful way. And from there, I really worked in many different places. I worked in Mozambique on a growth school feeding program with the World Food Program. I worked in uh, Dubai looking on development at a different scale, the city level scale, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, thinking about how you can actually think about development of cities. Then I really got into the World Bank and look at development uh, from the international financial, the IFC, international financial organization. And looking there at how you look at microfinance, how do you look at microfranchising, so kind of business-led development that generates kind of businesses, so producers, consumers, and livelihoods at the base of the pyramid. And then through this, there's a very big technological backbone throughout this kind of microfinance and microfranchising. So I became very interested in the power of technology, again, kind of going back to the, the origins of my career. And so basically what I did is I basically started to do some work for the World Bank on uh, five major technologies that could end up, what's their impact on the developing world? So these were things like AI, IoT, so artificial intelligence, of things, robotics, internet from the cell phone, cryptocurrencies, and all these kinds of things. You start seeing that the implications for this in the developing world are very different than they are from the developed world. And then through this kind of work, I started doing work on innovation at the base of the pyramid with the Inter-American Development Bank. And then in an interview with the future curator of the Museum of Tomorrow, I had a chat with him. I had just come back from Europe touring some labs, thinking about how can you do innovation uh, and creativity in a decentralized way. So outside of traditional structures of government or academia. So there's a bunch of these makerspaces, hacker labs, innovation centers in urban areas and peri-urban areas. And after the interview with the curator I, I was doing for a project at the IDB, basically what happened is that we continued drinking coffee and chatting and he asked me about these labs and he told me, well, there's a position at the labs director at the museum that's going to open in a year's time or it was a bit less than a year. Mm-hmm. And we haven't found anybody yet. So would you be interested? And then from there, everything started. And it's interesting as you kind of go through that journey, right? Like it's a word we use it. I use it at the beginning and that's so we're going to keep rocking with it as we go through this because it really is, I'm always interested in people who have navigated different spaces and also used learning from one space and applied it to another. So I call it this concept of like de-siloing, getting us out of knowledge verticals and putting things more together in order to solve complex challenges, complex problems. And it sounds to me, and I want to get your thoughts on this, obviously, is that both the social development space has certain processes to it, certain ways in which those institutions work. And I would say arts and culture spaces, museums, philanthropic organizations, arts organizations also have their own similar processes and traditions and ways of doing things. How did you kind of move between those two spaces to kind of build what sounds to me almost like a hybrid in terms of how you work in within the museum? So it's a super interesting question because I think it's a mindset, right? So 
if you are working within the mindset that the future is hybrid, and that came a lot of this from the the Harvard Kennedy School, this kind of tri-sector competency, like stop thinking you're in one sector, just already start thinking about different sectors, and you start opening yourself up to not being in one particular space. I think anthropology really helped me a lot undergrad time, and I'm, I'm sure you all agree that you start thinking about things in systems. You start being able to enter into a new space quickly, look at the system, understand what's there, and how you can first observe and then kind of become more engaged. So it's kind of like this participant observer kind of thing um, and, you know, kind of listening more. And that's what I do. I think it's it's like coming in with this mentality of like, you're going into a system that's already there. How the best way to interact in it is to listen and to understand as much as of it as you can, and then start understanding this as a network that you can't just come in and say, this is how it is, this is how it's going to be. So it's, it's a lot of this kind of network weaving, let's say. And I think that once you start seeing that there's connections underneath, like almost like the iceberg. There's all this stuff underneath it. And a lot of it is very similar. A lot of it, when you go to, towards the kind of the first principles of things, you start seeing that things do have connections. And I think it's like at one point, it's understanding, it's coming with a mindset. At the other point, is starting to see patterns, starting to look at systems. And at the other point is kind of having a very transdisciplinary mindset. So, and being able to explore and not be afraid because it is very difficult when you're coming to a different discipline that has different terms that has different kind of ways of talking and thinking in the beginning you're like oh my god what are these people saying it's like it's, i have no idea what this is but soon you start to see you know and you have this pattern seeking mindset it really helps and i think also just being very oriented towards people you know at the end of the day corporations governments all these are people understanding and being able to understand and be understood by people i think it's very important And that's a great point. I do want to really hone in on this idea of in the design space and in the future space, centering humanity, like making sure that people are a big part of that conversation because they are obviously the central component, organizing component to it. I'm going to table that for a second because I want to talk a little bit more broadly, just generally about the idea of the future, right? Like the future is something that is unknowable, but also we have entire industries based on predicting it. And the idea of futurism and futurist is huge, right? And I'm always curious about two things. One, it seems like a lot of futurists talk about the future as this singular concept, meaning it's very linear. We're moving toward this one future. So I want to get your ideas, you get your thoughts around that idea of, should we be more using a plurality, few futures, that there's several viable futures out there. And also another concept, so think of this as a part B, who participates in the future? Is the future a concept that is evenly distributed among all of us? Or is it something that is determined by those who have power and privilege, however you define that? So two different questions, but I wanted to lump them together. And these are excellent questions. I mean, just to start off, just to be very clear, the way that I think about it and the museum thinks about it is futures, plural. The future mm-hmm. is not somewhere that we arrive. It's not like a destination on a train from point A from point B. It's something that we create as humans, as citizens, as inhabitants of planet Earth. And that's something that we see a lot in the museum. And it guides a lot of, it kind of fires us in a lot of the things that we do, because I think that 
the future singular. It's colonized by dystopias that we have in science fiction, Black Mirror, in Blade Runner, in kind of Ready Player One. It's amazing. We did an exhibition called Ofisuka 2068. So Ofisuka means Japanese for office home. And it's talking about the future of work in 50 years. So you can imagine that all these kinds of things, technological automation, technological unemployment that will exist, but we didn't want to focus on those kinds of things. And we want to think how can we think of a future that we'd want to live in at that time in 50 years? So this hyper-creative world. And so what ended up happening is that we created this Ofisuka in the museum, in the temporary exhibition space. And it was this incredibly beautiful, kind of very um, colorful future. There was no screens, there was no nothing, but it looked like a very technological space where you had this kind of these machines that help you at the hyper-creative professional of the future. You could use different levels of your mind, your consciousness, your dreams that are taken and kind of harvested through these machines that you put on whenever you want some more inspiration, the deeper levels of your thoughts and your everything. And you had kind of machines to help you prototype with biopolymers. You had areas where you had bee houses in the walls where bees could also pollinate outside. And then you had these kinds of this smart vertical gardens inside that were also beautiful and served as like kind of a whole beautiful green wall where you could get food from there. And food was also printed from an algae substrate and perfectly customized to your genome and all these kinds of things. So these are all things we invented. And then I remember this artist came in on the first day and I was around, you know, just to see how things were on the opening. And she's like, did you curate this? And I told her, yes, it was a process with many people, but yeah, I curated it. And then she said, I didn't know the future could be this way. <laughs> and that made me so sad. You know, what I told her is like, future could be any way you want it. And as the saying goes, the best way to know what the future is, is to create it. And so there is no way that we're going. And what you're talking about, this, this idea of, is it evenly distributed? So William Gibson said that the future is already here. It's just not mm -hmm. distributed yet. This is one of the things that most worries me coming from Brazil, which is a, a country that's extremely unequal already. It has extreme inequality and seeing the impact of that and seeing the future. And we have had these kinds of what happens when you only have a certain type of person in this, from a certain type of place at the table. A lot of technologies that we have available today are, have been kind of created in Silicon Valley by, you know, kind of certain age of white male, still to this day, you, you have this kind of thing. So what happens? You have algorithms that have biases already imbued in them. And it's not something that is evil plan. It's not. It's based on what is the data you have available to train these algorithms on. So if you look at the data and there are artists who've done work on this, there's researchers who've done work on this, you will see that the data it's trained on is mostly white faces. These are database. These are all these kinds of systemic issues that we have. So what happens? So you have algorithms that... Um, in the past, there's cases of algorithms that were looking for drunk drivers and then started having above the board hitting, targeting Asian people because of what they said is, okay, a drunk person has eyes that are more closed, that has this and that. And then so the algorithm started identifying this kind of stuff based on what the machine was told to look for, right? But So if you only have one type of person who is being trained on, that's what you're going to happen. Or police algorithms, some that have been shut down in the U.S. for you know, showing incredible bias. There is this amazing group called the Algorithmic Justice League, if I'm not mistaken. And they do a lot of work on this, particularly on uh, Latino people, Blacks, these kinds of things, and seeing where these algorithms are. And you have the problem that 
there's a black box. Sometimes you can't even understand how the algorithm got to this kind of conclusion because there's kind of either it's proprietary or it's not easy to backtrack. So there are scientists working on this kind of stuff. I think the proprietary stuff is kind of complex, but it is very complicated. Going forward, algorithms are going to be more and more responsible for everyday things like who gets into colleges, who gets loans, who goes to jail, who gets parole. So, so I think that these questions are so important. And just to give you a very simple example, we had this kind of AI exhibition and one of the AIs, we had eight AIs there. And one of them looked at your face. And if you were smiling and put you on this wall of faces, right? You have to stand in a certain place and you're smiling puts you, and it's a dark area. So I was going down there touring just to see how things were. And then there was this woman that said, oh, this is not working. It's not working for me. And so I said, maybe you're standing in the wrong place. And so I went there, I stood, I smiled and my face went there. And then she went there and then she did, I'm like, stand exactly where I am because maybe that's a problem. So she did that and then her face didn't appear. And then another woman, her friend said, oh, is it because she's black? And I mean, it was this horrifying moment where I realized that the camera, it was not calibrated uh, to look at different skin tones. It could see my skin tone, I'm white, and but it couldn't see darker skin tones within the, the semi-darkness of the area that we were in. So, And you have a bunch of these different kinds of, of things where if you don't have different people in the room, you won't be seeing these kinds of things. And they just won't, it's not even doesn't enter in the conversation. It's not something evil. It's not something out to get you, but it's just you have to have these people in the room. Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, I've never been accused of being a sunny optimist. So this statement will <laughs> this okay. statement will probably fall very much in line with that thinking. I think there is a function of what I would call like benign neglect, that there are a lot of this is an educational process, it's a societal process, it's kind of cooked into the culture. Mm-hmm. And without a fair assessment of that culture, it's harder to think about what's going to happen in the future. And what I mean by that is, I'll use an example, right? And it's a United States example, because those are the ones I'm most familiar with and can speak more confidently about when people email me and tell me that I'm wrong, which um, often happens with listeners um, who try to confront the show. If I look at all the examples you cited are obviously examples of technology, right? That we're talking about face recognition and um, using AI in different spaces, and how those can go from being well-intentioned, meaning, yes, we're, we want to make sure people aren't drunk driving, to being more purposeful in terms of law enforcement and using um, facial recognition technologies. And, and that's been very much a hot topic here in the United States, particularly this year with demonstrations and protests that we've had mm-hmm. throughout the year. So fast forwarding, I would say a lot of this the underlying tone of that stuff still comes from far more analog uses of technology that are historically based, right? This idea of even something like credit scores. Most Americans Mm -hmm. don't really think so much about their credit score outside of when they have to apply for mortgage and maybe there's a leak and so people feel their personal information is out there. But it's still, when you think about it, this somewhat arbitrary number to assign how people pay for things. And I use an example of this. I went to Howard undergrad and it's a historically black college. And there've been studies that have shown that historically black colleges pay more for their municipal bonds as compared to white schools with a similar bond rating. And as a finance guy, all of that to me is the same algorithms. It's just one we're used to, one we're not. Meaning the technology is new versus 
an older technology that we've sort of got cooked into the system. But if you're skeptical of those systems in the first place, I think it makes it easier to catch the other thing. So long-winded, but just to say that I'm curious about the further looking at these sort of technologies, because even just last week, I read a study that I'll put in the show notes. I don't quite remember the two scholars that worked on it, but it was really good. Just talking about how AI is, yeah, artificial intelligence is largely characterized in a cultural perspective as being white. So if you think about even some of the examples that you highlighted, Blade Runner, the replicants are primarily white. iRobot with Will Smith, the facial look of whatever the robot's name was, is kind of white features, right? And that kind of lends to the conversation about this camera. All of these systems are kind of cooked in. And I'm curious, after that very long editorial that I apologize for, Brazil is, I would say, probably the largest multicultural type of uh, type of country in the world. Different types of people, different skin tones and all the rest of it, right? How do you think about those issues when we think about the creating art and culture spaces that are working toward the future? Well, Brazil has a, a very, you're right, it, it does have a lot of races, the biggest Japanese population outside of Japan, the biggest yeah. Black population outside of Nigeria, the biggest Lebanese population. But all that being said, the racism that's here is super, it's, it's there. And it may be in a, a different way than in the U.S., but it certainly does exist. I mean, I think that one of the things that we try to do in the lab is really get a diversity in all senses. So in terms of ages, in terms of races, in terms of backgrounds. So economic backgrounds are super important uh, for us too. And those tend to be a proxy for race here, unfortunately, as well. And this is something that we really strive to get these people together because one of the things we said, okay, so our purpose as the lab in the Museum of Tomorrow is to prototype more social and sustainable futures using high and low tech in a transdisciplinary way. So that definition, it guides everything we do. So what does this mean? So prototype. Prototype means that everything we do has to end up as something that's physical or digital. We can't just write about it. We can't just talk about it. We can't just kind of give, give it, do a PowerPoint about it. We need to actually do it. In the doing is the complex, messy, scary, uncomfortable, ungraceful backstory of what's happening. And sustainable. So how do we want to live with the planet? These are two of the ethical pillars of the museum. So sustainable, how we want to live the planet and convivial, uh, I say social to make it easier because conviviality is not a word that's very much used in English, but convivial is how we want to live with each other and transdisciplinary. So it's not just many disciplines at the table, but it's disciplines where you can use processes, uh, tools, frameworks from one discipline to the other, the kind of knowledge bases, kind of ways of doing things. And high-low tech, right? That's just the way that we do it. Sometimes you don't need AI for everything or you don't need like kind of like a, a jumbo jet to get across the street. Sometimes they're very good. And we've used a lot this year. We've looked a lot of, at kind of this idea of, of ancestral futurism. So kind of um, this looking at the past and kind of translating that towards the future. So we did this a lot with indigenous groups in Brazil, with few indigenous groups. Uh, we did Ripangia, which is techno-shamanic experience in VR. And we used a lot of these ideas of kind of how indigenous, uh, some indigenous groups organize, and we didn't focus on one. We did many, and it was kind of abstracted towards this future and space, and this kind of thing. But the idea was to really, how can we get 
the best of kind of these cultures that often aren't um, included, that often aren't kind of brought to the table because there's so much knowledge there. It's almost as if things are invisible until somebody comes and tells you. So one thing we did work on food as well. So creating kind of different uh, futuristic food systems, let's say. And one of the researchers, food researchers we had there, she's like, do you know how many food species and plants that we walk past that we don't even know that it's food anymore because we've lost that ability to see that this is food you know like she's like this one is like a kind of a pepper this one has like extremely high protein counts she's like don't eat these now because you know dogs are you know coming in there and kind of relieving themselves on these but like but there's so much information and i just wonder how much information that we lose by not bringing these people cultures ways of doing things to the table i think people need to understand it as a loss for us for humanity for the way that things are done and so we did this a lot like looking back at brazilian cultures asian cultures we did kind of geodesic domes based on asian knowledge of bamboo so so things that we wouldn't even know and now you have groups that are a few groups, not many, but like some architectural studios that are, are kind of rediscovering the power of bamboo, for example, or kind of like these different kinds of wood instead of cement. So I really think it's a loss if we don't bring this knowledge to the table. I love that you brought that up, even unprompted, unsolicited, because I actually have a question asking about that, asking about how do we make the future a reflection of the past? Because I was thinking about concepts like the commons, for example, right? Like this idea of creating spaces that are built by and for public use as opposed to private use. And even because a lot of your work has been focused on the future of work and that's been an accelerating reality, right? As we've all been working, increasingly working distributed, working from home, as we've kind of wrestled with the pandemic, different geographic places being at different points in their time with COVID-19, but ideas of labor protection, right? I use the term, the future of work is labor. I'm less inclined to the tools and more inclined to the people. And it's amazing that you're kind of baking that in to the system. Kind of pulling a little bit more from that, I wanted to talk about the idea of progress versus innovation. Obviously, innovation is in your title, is in your job title. (laughs) So I'm thinking about these things more from a philosophical perspective, because I think we use these terms interchangeably, but actually progress and innovation are quite different. I'll use one quick example to kind of illustrate what I mean by that, just for ease. Uber, to me, as a ride-sharing concept, is is an innovation, but it's not progress. Because we're still thinking about largely carbon-fueled vehicles. We're still thinking about driving from point A to point B in cities that are already more congested. So is ride-sharing the thing as opposed to public transportation? That's a whole different conversation. But I'm using them as an example to illustrate a difference there. And I'm curious um, how you think about those concepts, regardless of the job title. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, so you come into a museum of applied science technology. The ideas that were circling around the lab in the beginning were like, oh, let's make this a makerspace. Let's put a whole bunch of machinery. So the, my, the budget initially was all about machinery. And then it's like if the only tool you have is a hammer, then the whole world looks like a nail. So I think that you have to, from the beginning, don't put yourself into a box or a corner. And so and so then I said, I think it's going to be just like the museum is the lab is going to be a place of possibilities and of questions. And I think that is the main thing, right? So this idea of questions are the most important thing. And it's so important to question progress. For whom? 
is this progress? Who is saying that this is progress? Who is being contemplated in this kind of idea of progress? What are the consequences? So, and if you're sometimes in your fast-paced environment, think about this later. Let's just think about what we have to do. But that is not the case, right? I think that this matrix is matrix of important, unimportant, urgent, not urgent, right? And we, most of the time, we're in kind of the important urgent, the kind of this idea of, okay, what needs to be done now? What needs to be done? And then the non-important urgent, right? And the important but non-urgent, this is a space of the questions and of what kind of world do we want to create? Like, do we have to have, should we make these things just because we can or should we have a thought process behind it? And I think that more often than not, people who are making technology, they don't, there is this non-questioning nature that's very problematic to me. And this is why we started looking at the past where people often say, especially here, past civilizations, they're past because they're past. So indigenous people, like what does this have to do with me? Because they're in some kind of like far off rainforest or whatever. And the thing is, we have so much progress here because look at us, we have all these buildings and all these kinds of things. But at the same time, we are crossing several planetary boundaries. That means that we have not been able to live within the means of the planet. We have every year a date taking out this year because of the great pause that we've had, but every day at the World Overshoot Day where we've passed the limit of the planet for that year every day earlier. So this is why I really like this Sankofa, which is this word from the, the Ashanti Adrinka symbol that I first got to know when we had a literally, he was African-Brazilian, so he's Afro-Brazilian from, from Ghana and from Brazil too. I think his, his mother was from Ghana. And then he put these symbols there and he was explained to me, he's a designer. And we did the future of fashion. So we invited him and along with many other people to do 14 other designers, stylists, technologists. And he designed all these images and he explained to me this kind of stylized heart-shaped bird, head turned backwards, but his feet going forward. So it's like this idea that going back to go forward in a sense. And then this kind of evolved this Afro-ancestral-futurism thing. It's not just taking those things in the past because we have a different context now, but understanding how those things were created, why they were created, and what can we use and what can we adapt to our current technologies, to all these kinds of things, to create a more sustainable and convivial future. There's all these great ideas that we can borrow from that can be in our toolbox so that we can kind of create this future that is more within the planetary boundaries, that is more convivial, that enables space for more, for a diverse group of people to live and to thrive and to have better lives. Anytime you can mention Sankofa in a conversation, that's a good thing. And <laughs> uh, there's a actually a, a really good movie that came out like a thousand years ago. And when I say a thousand years ago, I mean like in the 90s. And um, <laughs> a thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah. It never got a really large release here in the US. And it's, I would imagine it's become a little bit of a cult classic in African American cinema. And it's called Sankofa. I saw it again a thousand years ago and have never really been able to find it. It's one of these movies that if you had it on a videotape or something, you might still have it, but it's not on streaming in any way that oh. I've been able to find. Maybe it's on YouTube, but it's a very interesting movie that incorporates the Sankofa concept, the spiritual concept of it, to tell a very interesting story. So that's not a drop, but it just came up in conversation. I wanted to mention <laughs> it while we had a moment. But I think that kind of tension that exists between those states, the past, the future, innovation and progress, who are we speaking to is so important. And it's critical that you guys are doing that kind of work, meaning the museum is doing that kind of work to think through those issues. I wanted to take a few moments to really actually 
interrogate the idea of museums as a whole. I'm a big museum fan personally. And what I've seen over the past few years, and I have this conversation with Tim as well, Tim Stock, the guy who I mentioned at the beginning of the show, where museums have become sort of commoditized in the Instagram world. I don't know how familiar you are with this awful concept of this museum of ice cream. That's just, it's... yeah. <laughs> but they use the word museum to give largely, to give weight, cultural weight to something that is just marketing, right? To sell things and make you come in and take pictures and all that kind of stuff. And I read a book by um, Orhan Pamuk, Turkish writer, Museum of Innocence last year. For some reason, this book has really stuck with me and impacted me because he created also the Museum of Innocence to support the book, but it's a standing museum in Istanbul. Mm. And his whole thinking about that is to reimagine museums. And he uses a lot of language as to move them away from the institutions of the state that are there to kind of talk about the past and market the past and make them smaller and more human. And he uses this idea because obviously he's an author of old museums. I think of like the Louvre, the Met, big kind of art institutions. He would say that they are epics and we need museums that are more like novels, meaning that they're more human in their experience. And so I'm curious, like this museum has been so different in so many ways. How do you think about the relevance of the museums generally but you can apply some of that specifically to the to the Museo of Tomorrow if you think it, it fits. That is an excellent debate and concept and, and question because I love museums too. And I think that it's not so much of the thing, of the object, as much as the concept, the context, what does that mean? What was going around? I think that's the systemic thinking coming into too. Like what has to happen for this to exist, for this object to exist, for this kind of like when science museum, for this kind of scientific elements exist kind of things. And I think that museums most work for me that I'm most interested in when they lead to questioning, to kind of thinking about things differently and to kind of putting in perspective things for you and kind of altering your frame of mind around that. You see something in the past or somebody is kind of, I remember somebody once said, oh, to get new ideas, read an old book in a certain sense. And so in a sense, you see a lot of disciplines, particularly fashion, a lot going to look at these paintings in the past and kind of jewelry in the past, those kind of things. Some scientists and, and things like that uh, looking at what was done in the past too and studying that. There's an example. And I think what's interesting is what debates come from this and what questions come from this and all these kinds of things. There was in Australia, I went to speak there and there was this museum. It's amazing. This one Aboriginal leader, they were trying to look at, you know, land rights and who owned the land in this particular area. And what he did is he used the evidence from the paintings, from the kind of like in paintings of the pastoral scenes or whatever the case may be, like kind of the nature scenes. And then his point was, OK, you can see here clearly that Aboriginals were working the land. That was the legislation hinged on that. So I think that you know, using these kinds of places to gain information, to like gain insights, to gain questioning is when museums work the most. I think that... Um, in many, in most museums today, in most museums that do well today, you have a whole host of other things that are happening. So courses, you have like tours and walks and kind of yoga. So the museums almost becomes like a cultural center also, besides all those things that it has. And it becomes a kind of live museum. Some of the better museums kind of putting kind of user-generated content. So like exhibitions from users and kind of interactions. There is this art museum in São Paulo, Pinacoteca, which is excellent. So they have very problematic paintings of problematic 
past issues in Brazil, like slavery, like indigenous people being killed in paintings and all these kinds of things, or women being kind of unsavory things. But what did they do? Instead of getting rid of those paintings and these, these huge artists and things like that, what they did is that they did something so brilliant. On the other side, they painted the wall a different gray, and then they put a painting of somebody like, for example, it was a black woman, the slave black woman. They put a black painter kind of doing the counterpoint there and explaining what these things mean. Because we can't wipe away history. We can definitely and we have to talk about problematize history. It has mm-hmm. to be problematized because or else we will repeat it. You know, so so I think that this is super important to see. You know, and I thought that that was brilliantly done. And in the Museum of Tomorrow, it, you know, it's a little bit different. We don't have any. We have like one object and then we have uh, artwork which is ephemeral. And the rest of it is kind of experiences. So like kind of it's a museum of questions and possibilities. So nobody's saying that this is going to, this is how it's going to be. And that's why it's very different from other traditional museums of science and object-based and these kinds of collections and stuff. And so so we have collections, I guess, that are kind of experiences and digital and all these kinds of things. It was a very kind of well thought out thing of how it's not going to be the museum of the future. That's the museum of of the past very quickly because these things are changing all the time. So there's a lot, there's been like over 500, modifications in in the museum big and small since then we've added uh, an ai to the museum i think it's the only ai possibly Uh, we did this in collaboration with one of our amazing partners ibm watson using ibm watson i think it's the only ai that asks you questions rather than (laughs) than answers questions because that's the theme of the museum so it has asked you so from all that you've seen after you visited the exhibition what concerns you what are you kind of interested in and then from that it kind of gives you more information and then it connects you to NGOs and organizations that we have vetted to continue doing the work because we don't want people to just come in and have an Instagram experience or have like, you know, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to put it Facebook and I had a great time and this is a great two hours. Awesome. But we want people to take what they've learned to be impacted by it and to go out and do something. So now we're in the process of trying to measure this kind of things with, it's hard to do, but we're trying to measure it through kind of questionnaires and all these kinds of things based on people who've who visited the whole museum. So, so Yeah. It's a, such a seductive and beautiful space, which is why it resonated with me immediately when I started working on this presentation. Because I think in so many ways, it is so far and ahead from a physical design, from a curatorial, from a curatorial process of really thinking about how to address these very human issues. And obviously, you're at the center of that as such a big part of what makes um the Museum of Tomorrow so special. I want to get us out on this question before we go to the last two segments of the show, which is, as you look out onto this landscape, obviously we're in the throes of this pandemic. I've mentioned it in the course of the show. Different geographic places are in different parts of dealing with this, but obviously it has changed the way in which we gather in physical spaces. The future is coming at us fast as we sort of navigate this. So I'm curious about what are some of these viable ways in which you're dealing with some of the issues around COVID-19? And those are not just health related, but they are social, they are political, they're all of those things. And America is a disaster. So I'm not looking for uh, acting as if we're doing so amazing. Um, And so I'm curious about how you're kind of thinking about those futures, as well as, as you've tried to stay away from this leaning into this darker dystopia, how you're kind of being, or if you are optimistic as you look out onto some of these viable futures. And then we'll get to the last two segments of the show. 
So a lot of the stuff that we do, we try to do programs for various types of people and, and getting people involved. We have a program called the Evidences of, of Black Cultures, Indigenous Matrix Matrices, and all these kinds of things where we get, where we do kind of these programs in conjunction with Black cultural organizations in the areas where they get together and discuss. And it's kind of like reflections on various areas, whether it's education, legal, scientific thinking about also indigenous uh, futures and lives and, and how they see things and how in from the past to the, to the future. So getting these on the table, we have a is super important. We have work with people that we say in a street living situation, but we don't say homeless, we living on the streets. So we have a program with them where they have a choral and they practice in the museum and they do work with them. We have between Museums, which is a program where um, kind of less advantaged kids are able to discover museums and different museums, not just the Museum of Tomorrow. They can make these connections. We have the garden, the communal garden of the museum, the lab where we kind of inspire people to create, not just to consume uh, the future, whether it's technologies or whether it's kind of these kinds of things. So, so it's really focused a lot on kind of being a space, a very kind of open space for these kinds of things. LGBTQI also, I mean, in this government, we have Evangelical Mayor who um, has come out against many of these kinds of things. So we talk a lot about how should we position? Will we get pushback? Many museums have uh, gotten pushback for these kinds of things. Will we continue doing them? Because we think that we are at a space that's kind of neutral in a sense, but we're neutral, but we can't stay neutral uh, in the debate. So it's complicated. It can be at, at times frightening, but it's super important. So all of these, these things that we do, we try to make things as open as possible. The research that we do, kind of inviting people in now in this new digital age, we're trying to think about doing a lot of lives and having musicians talk about science and art and nature and photographers and all these. So it's kind of pushing us to make our programming a little bit different. We've done kind of now these courses on uh, creative coding online, which we've never done before. We've only done it in person. So it's really pushing us out of our comfort zone. So really keeping this diversity that we had uh, with us. We've had about uh, over 4 million visitors in four years. That's 4 million, 500, something like that. So at the lab, we've we've done work on, you know, exhibitions exploring the future of work in 50 years. We've explored creative artificial intelligences. We've prototyped fashion of the future. We have developed VR, VR techno-shamanic experience. We've invited people to hack their city through an exhibition called A Stroll Through a Hacked Rio. And we've created edible prototypes as well as, you know, workshops so people can learn these kind of old techniques and bring them to the new. So, so everything we try to do, we try to get people involved in different ways as possible. So everything is about provocation, is about, you know, showing a different way. We think a lot about user experience and kind of experience design uh, when we do this. So in the museum, that's super important is, is, the, is how the visitor is experiencing it. And we offer, we try to offer things inside the museum and take people outside the museum and connect them in sensorially different ways as much as we possibly can. It's a truly amazing space and I can't wait till travel has resumed at a quote unquote normal rate that will allow me to, to come down to Brazil and see the space for myself. I was in Sao Paulo two years ago, almost went back to Sao Paulo last year, but I got lots of friends there. So looking to come back to Brazil and spend some time in, in Rio, I haven't been in a few years. So I want to get us out on our last two segments of the show. The first one is off the dome. And these are just a couple, a few quick questions. And first, first thing that comes to mind, stream of consciousness kind of thing. So you're all set? Yes. Okay. So I know you grew up here. 
but you you are Brazilian and you live in Brazil now. And I think Brazil is one of those places where when people find out you're Brazilian, they have like super annoying or maybe funny, maybe annoying is too strong a word, but kind of funny assumptions or questions about being Brazilian. So what's one of your more pet peeve, funny, annoying questions or assumptions you get when people hear that you're Brazilian? Yeah. <laughs> So I, I used to get, this is in college, in college, I used to get very annoying questions about Brazil, like, you know, do people, you know, gr- roam around on vines and, you know, are there like tarantulas in the cities and stuff? And so at some point I just got annoyed with all these questions. So I said, yes, the tarantulas are huge and we have to like figure out a way to like run away from them super quickly without them reaching us because it's very, it's, it's, it's very scary. So, so, I mean, I guess it just had <laughs> me fun with it, but like, you know, I mean, you know, the, the capital, you know, some, some more recent ones are, is, is the capital of Brazil, Argentina, you know, I mean, kind of assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> assumptions about, you know, like every Brazilian who plays soccer is like, you know, I, I don't know. So, so I think that, you know, I, I like to, I, I today it's less because I think people are more international. I think there's less of this kind of thing, but you know, in the past I definitely did play around with people a little bit. I must admit. <laughs> Wow, tarantulas is not one I would have expected. I tarantulas and vines and vines also. Like, do do Brazilians get around on vines? Yeah. Jeez, yeah. Louise. that that <laughs> would never have occurred to me. Soccer, yeah. Vines and tarantulas, not at all. So that's a weird yeah. one. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you can, if you have to describe yourself in one word, what would that word be? Curious, curious. I think it's one of the things that's the the most important things to be uh, today. A, a curiosity about everything, and that's really what's gotten me through, um, and gotten me gotten me interested in in all of these kinds of things, and gotten me through uh, all the different areas that I that I worked in. Okay, and this is going to be my last um, off the dome question. And I asked this one very recently to a guest, but I liked it, and so I wanted to ask it again. <laughs> um, if you had a choice of traveling back in time to meet your ancestors or going toward the future to meet your descendants, which one would you choose? Oh, that's super easy. <laughs> to the future. I mean, if I, if I were, if I continued being a woman, yeah, I would definitely go to the future. I would not go to the past for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a simple one. Um and, and I'd be curious to see what, what happens in the in the future. You know, the past, you can read about it, but the, the future definitely is something I'd love to discover. Okay, awesome. So now we're going to get into the very last segment of the show, which is the drop. You know, I, can, I give a drop. I ask my guests to give a drop. And this could be anything that you think our listeners would find interesting or you'd want to share with them. Doesn't have to be serious. Could be anything at all. I'm happy to go first or you can go first. You go first. Okay. <laughs> My drop is actually a, a record that it came to my mind this past weekend because I was talking to my niece about music. We were kind of texting back and forth and she's kind of explored. She's at that age where she's exploring music that was your music, but she's just discovering it. So she's like, have you heard of this artist? And I'm like, have you met me? Of course I've heard of that. artist. <laughs> um, so I recommended that she listen to um, uh, a singer here that I love, Michelle and Cello and her um, debut album, which came out, I think, 93, is called Plantation Lullabies. And it's a great introduction to her work. It's a, it's very much a, a, um, it's both timeless and very much music of that moment, that kind of 93, 94 
moment. So my drop is Michelle and Diego Cello's Plantation Lullabies. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I have two, if that's okay. Two is allowed. We have no, <laughs> okay. no limit of drops. <laughs> no limit. Okay, so I'm reading now a book by the chief futurist at Magic Leap. Um, it's called The Diamond Age. It's by Neil Stevenson. And I think that this is really interesting because, you know, it's a book that he wrote and he then, then he went to Magic Leap. So it's been interesting to see um, how he can translate some of the stuff that he talks about in the book to reality. So I think that these kinds of futurists and these companies are super, super interesting to follow. Um, and then I have one. I know you are a, a DJ. So um, there is there is a, a singer we recently had um, speaking to us about um, trans rights. She's trans. She's black, trans and non-binary. Um, and she is really just, I mean, kind of new and exploding on the scene. Um, and I think it's really fantastic for a country like Brazil to be having this kind of uh, uh, person who's who's in the media and who's making people, you know, learn more about these these kinds of things. And her music is really good. So it's called she's called Majur, M-A-J-U-R. Um, she did a she did this live with us as well um, so, in the Museum of Tomorrow. So so very cool stuff. Um, yeah, I think I would suggest awesome. those. Those are two great drops. Thank you so <laughs> much. It's It's been amazing having you on the show. I love the way you're thinking about things. I love the work. I love the space. And like I said, hoping to come down to Rio as soon as is humanly possible. So thank you for being on the deep dive. Amazing. It was so great chatting with you. I, I loved it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having Marcelo Sabino join me on the deep dive. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.